International Diplomatic Student Association is Hungary-based student organization for university students interested in political science, multilateral treaties, and intergovernmental relations. IDSA Podcast aims to educate its listeners on career opportunities to university students in Hungary, opening their minds to pressing social and geopolitical issues. The podcast is recorded with the support of Epper Radio. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to the next episode of the IDSA podcast, an exclusive project launched by the International Diplomatic Student Association. My name is Simon Lee, and today we have the great privilege to talk to Mr. Victor Esterhuy, who is working for the Institute for Foreign Affairs and Trade as a senior research fellow. He obtained a degree in psychology and history and is now focusing on geopolitics within China and Central Europe, while also currently teaching at the University Corvinus of Budapest. Mr. Esehai, thank you so much for taking the time and agreeing to talk to us today. Thank you very much for having me here. Let me start with the beginning of your career. You own two degrees. One is from psychology and the other is one is from history. They are indeed very interesting fields. How did international relations come to, into the picture? Why did you decide to turn into international relations? Well, this question goes back to the beginning of my PhD studies because I decided to focus on a historical question which has relevance to our days as well. So my research focus was very simple, that what is the traditional vision of interstate relations in China and can this have an effect on the current institution-making efforts of China and the, and the foreign policy of China because China was forced into the Western structures in the mid of the 19th centuries and still holding its place in the Western uh, structure. And for one and a half a century, we could see a very low profile Chinese foreign policy. And many argued that China will not implement new institutions, new ideals in the in- international arena. But in the last few years, it became quite obvious that China is somehow emerging as a kind of a rule setter in the international politics. And therefore, this question becomes very relevant, that is China using its uh, traditional mindset, vision, experience of interstate relations, which its history goes back to hundreds of uh, years or even thousands of years. So in my research, I decided to focus on the last uh, imperial interstate system that was the Qing dynasty's interstate system. So this was the case study was a historical one. But then I was curious how this affected the behavior of states. And when we are focusing on the behavior of states, that goes to social sciences and IR theories. So I used various theories of IR to understand the characteristics of the behavior of China during the Qing dynasty. And I had to figure out that this is not working. I have to create an own Uh, model. Of course, I borrowed many cultural elements from my studies, and I especially borrowed the concept from the interpersonal uh, relations, which is called guanxi in Chinese. And this concept I used as a tool to uh, understand the interstate relations. And then at the end of my research, I investigated this concept in China's new institution-making efforts. So that's, that's the historical part of my research interest. And from Psychology, I did not borrow too much, but uh, we had a strict teachers on, in psychology on, on methodology. So that was very uh, relevant for me because as a historian, I did not have this social sciences methodology toolkit. But thanks to my previous studies in my BA in psychology, I could borrow this toolkit for my later research as well. That's very great to hear. Uh, you're currently working for the IFTA as a senior, senior research fellow. 
Could you explain your research fields and your daily tasks within the IFTA? And how can one picture one day of your life as a researcher? Uh, so as, as I just described in my PhD and in my major part of my research, I, I focus on very theoretical concepts. But in the everyday research, what we do at the Institution of Foreign Efforts and Trade, this is very pragmatic. I have to say it's extremely pragmatic or close to realism. So what we do is to mostly to follow China's foreign policy steps. And I also focus on focusing on the relationship between China and Europe and with a special focus of Central Eastern Europe. So that's what I have to do is mostly to, to try to follow the steps of China, try to interpret it and try to analyze it. And what I do in an average day, so most of the time I'm sitting in front of my computer, <laughs> as other researchers also do, so reading and writing. Uh, but life at IFAT is, to be frank, is, is very special from a different point of view that we are, we are also preparing sometimes public, but most of the cases, reports which never be published. So we are producing papers to the decision makers. So therefore, it means that we also have access to different information, which, which helps to make your perspective more bored. And we have a broader vision of what is happening in the world. And the most exciting element in my job is that I'm sitting with those kind of people who have a different country focus, different regional focus, and some of them are more experienced in economy, some of them in political issues. There are also who are focusing on cultural issues. And in most of the cases, when we are in the office, we have very harsh debates. And that's the best part in my job. So, so to be frank, most of the time I'm, home, I'm at home sitting with my computer. But when I'm in the office, that's very exciting. As you mentioned, um, your research interests are mostly related to China and Central Europe. In other words, what, what is the research field that you're most proud of? Well, I'm most proud of this model I investigated in my PhD because this is challenging the so-called Western schools of IR. And compared to some of the Chinese versions of this IR school, the Chinese School of International Relations, I think my major contribution is that I could provide a kind of a model to understand the institution-making efforts of China. So it's a more practical approach than many of the Chinese scholars introduced to the discussions in the recent decade. I'm most proud of, of this part of my research. And what I'm currently focusing on is also connected to how China is building relations. Uh, this is connectivity. So the second element of my research, how connectivity is used as a strategy by great uh, powers, how connectivity can be used as a weapon. And this is now very obvious <laughs> thanks to the Ukrainian war. So how Western countries are using connectivity like cutting off Russia from SWIFT uh, system to change the behavior of Russia. So, so this is one of the elements of my research, how can these connectivity weaponized? But I'm more focusing on how this con connectivity strategy can be a rational and productive uh, way to influence other actors in the longer term. Because when you use it as a weapon, you can use it only once or, or temporarily. But what is more effective to create long-term connectivity and in various fields, very complex forms of connectivity uh, can, be, can be used. And this is a very interesting case of China because what China is doing is, is as a major economic power is to creating connectivity in order to influence other countries. So this is the thing I'm currently working on. And I have, of course, special focus on the Hungarian case because Hungary is a small country. So how can a small country in this web of connectivity change the behavior of greater actors? In terms of Chinese and Hungarian relations, are there many trade-related and economic-related agreements between Hungary and China? And do you see this relationship from the spectrum of international relations? 
Yeah, so I just mentioned connectivity. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> of course, this is also part of the picture, how economic relations can be tools in order to, to create political influence. But in the case of uh, the Hungary and Chinese relations, uh, in most of the cases, we have to be very practical and see that are the clear limitations of this. So Hungary is part of the German or Western value chains. So therefore, the relationship between the economic relationship between China and Hungary, at least in the coming, still in the coming years, is quite limited. So Hungary is part of the global economy, but through, again, the German value chain. So we are able to reach Chinese market, but only with those kind of German products, what we are producing in Hungary, and not with the local products. So that's a bigger issue that we are not very competitive on the Chinese market with our own products, just via those products which are produced in Hungary by international uh, actors. And the other is also that Hungary had limitations to attract Chinese investment because that's also a structural issue that what we mostly offer is cheap labor force and in China also still have cheap labor force at home. So from this point of view, Hungary is not an attractive place to to invest so much. So that's the reason I I always have to say for this question that we have to see here the limitations. And, And I'm not a big fan of this concept that China is investing in order to buy politicians here in Hungary in order to influence their political behavior. China is obviously having a, have a strategy to use economy in order to to influence into politics, but this is due to structural reasons are very limited in Hungary. So I do not put too much uh, emphasis on this issue because what we can see mostly here is uh, there are strong relationship with some certain interest groups, some people who have relationship in China, and that that's all. And we have at the high level a very good political relations, but these two levels are not necessarily have to connect with each other. This is going to be a quite personal question. Hmm? In 2017, you visit Fudan University in Shanghai. And currently, there's an initiative here in Budapest to construct a branch of Fudan University, which has sparked a public conversation on Chinese influence in Europe. And as for you, how does the construction of Fudan University affect the Chinese, Hungarian and the Sino-European relations? Mm-hmm. I just mentioned that uh, what I see in the Hungarian Chinese relations is mostly that there are some interest groups who are very active and to do something with China. And in the case of the Fudan issue, I also have to highlight that this originally concept did not come from the highest level, but more on a, on an interpersonal level. So this idea to to bring Fudan in. To Hungary, it's not necessarily coming from the top level. And so that's the reason I, I do not buy those kind of uh, interpretations that this is a grand strategy of the Chinese Communist Party to influence Hungary via university, because that's not true. What we certainly know that this idea to create a branch of Fudan University, especially at the beginning of, uh, of this idea was that to make something a common program, a common MBA program, and then later this was turned out to, to attract some elements or branches of Fudan University to Hungary, was picked up picked up by the highest level of, uh, of uh, political decision makers. So this is, goes against the general description of, of the situation. How can this affect the Hungarian, Hungarian, sorry, Hungarian-Chinese relations? Yes. Uh, of course, this could be a flagship project, but first it, it has to be implemented. So let's wait and see. Of course, uh, this could have an extremely complex e- effect on higher education in Hungary. So this this can be uh, viewed in, in many angles. So this will obviously create several contradictions and, and also uh, problems. Uh, what I find the most uh, curi- uh, strange, at least, nobody's really curious about the content of the university. 
And and of course, I, I am familiar with the foreign voices of special criticism on the project and so on. But nobody's really talking about what is Fudan going to teach in Hungary. So because this is a very relevant issue, because as the Hungarian government arguing, the Hungary higher education is somehow lagging behind compared to the average or especially the Western level of higher education, for example, in the engineering or whatever. So this can have a relevance to catch up or, or somehow find a positive uh, element of this project. But nobody's really talking about this. So in most of the cases, the discourse is about whether the university is used for spying and this kind of things, which is not a top concern, I think, or at least this should not be a top concern for, for the society, because obviously all institutions can be used for spying. But I don't think that China would invest such a huge amount of money to collect information on students. And so, I mean, it's it's quite... It's, it's not seems to be very rational for me. So I think that the top uh, issue should be the content of the teaching and and what why this can be interesting for Hungary. And I I have to again under uh, highlight here again that we should be very pragmatic in this, understand what could be the benefits and what could be the costs. And after this, I I think a, a good decision can be made. So I don't like this kind of discourse which is just focusing on the bad and only only the good elements of this project. Obviously, this is a complex issue. When we talk about international sphere, from your point of view, what kind of values that China is trying to export to other countries, as both as a strategic partner and as a rival international politics? What we can see in the West mostly is a kind of answer of the uh, from from China to the Western initiatives and Western actions. So here we cannot see too much what is the vision China is bringing to the world. Because with the West, China is, is behaving in a very Western way. So currently in this great power competition that we are experiencing in the recent years, the United States tries to encircle China. And so therefore, what is China doing? They st- testing the, the intention of or, or the promises of uh, the United States giving to East and Southeast Asian uh, alliance system. So what we can see, and mostly what we are focusing on in the West, is not really what China is bringing to the world. Because we, we are not really interested on this. This can be a better question or better framed for the developing countries because for the developing countries, China is somehow providing new institutions. And if we, if China is providing new institutions, it must have some specific values. This one of the values which are articulated by the Chinese Communist Party is the so-called win-win type of relations, which seems to be a bullshit for many of the Westerns. But if you try to understand how China is creating relationship and how China is creating connectivity, this will have a sense. So China is creating relations between uh, asymmetric parties. China is is the stronger one, while the the other party obviously is a, is a weaker one. And how China is creating this kind of connectivity is a form like how father in the traditional Chinese concept is helping the helping the son. So from this point of view, this this value is creating win win means that we can develop together, and it does not mean that I can have a bigger benefit now. Because this is a kind of an exchange of favors in the longer term. So this this can be one of the value which, uh, I would highlight, and, and this is again not just a bullshit. This is this is more because it's more deep. Because for China, its major interest is, to, I mean, for the Chinese Communist Party's major interest is to develop the economy. So how can they develop the economy if they create relationship, those kind of relationship, which is beneficiary for both. So this can help the local economies, but also it must help 
the Chinese economy at the same time. So this relationship is not really explored yet. And here I think would be this could be very valuable to understand the true uh, values behind this. But again, what we see in the West is a very simplistic view on China, and and we try to push our own models to understand China, and this is not very beneficial in most of the cases. Since you mentioned that connectivity, as I interpret it,、uh, I think that it is one of the most central prospects of Chinese、uh, foreign policy. I think it is possible that I bring up one of the articles that you published on asymmetrical dependence using Myanmar and the China-sponsored Misson Dam, Hydro Dam, as a case study. And you mentioned how soft power, such as education, can really reinforce the legitimacy of China's presence in Myanmar. Are there any other areas that China is trying to push forward in order to legitimize its presence in any other country? I, in this case, I think it's the best to turn to the Belt and Road Initiative because that's Grandi's vision to recreate connections between Asia, Europe, and Africa. And in this in this regard, Chinese Communist Party. Published official documents. One of the most well-known is the Vision and Action, the jointly built Belt and Road Initiative. And in this Vision and Action, Chinese Communist Party identified five elements of connectivity. And soft power, or or how this was portrayed in your question, is mostly the people-to-people -people,、uh, exchange is only one element、uh, of connectivity. But it is more broader. One is the coordination between different local and regional、uh, policies. So, for example, if you have trade policy, this can be harmonized. To each other in order to connect more the different economies. The other aspect is financial integration, third is infrastructure, and the next is、uh, trade. So there are different angles of connectivity. How China is envisioning this kind of forms to to create connection between between China and other parts of the world. And what is true in this case that it's always China the center. Which connects to different other parts of、uh, the region. This providing an asymmetric role to China in order to use it to influence it, and this is very different from most of the Western connectivity approaches. Because as we just discussed, this is very complex. So not focusing on one field, like one field of economy, like most of the Western approaches, is dealing with should we build a road somewhere or or <laughs> building a motorway, because this in itself do not change anything. The major question is how is it connected to one point to another one? What are these points? And in this case, this is in the case of China, this is always China, China and another region. This is always an asymmetric relations which. Provide leverage for China to to influence the behavior of the smaller parties and in a complex form. So this is also this is also focusing on education, on cultural exchanges, people to people exchange programs. So this is how how it works. China is not focusing on only one element of of the relationship. Regarding the Belt Road Initiative, the EU has announced its own development project called the Global Gateway. Does the EU now plan to rival Chinese influence、uh, with the Global Gateway, and how does it affect the relationship between China and the EU going forward? Yeah, EU has the Global Gateway, and also the United States have an initiative, the Build Back Better for the World Initiative. These both are about China because they try to provide a response to the Belt and Road Initiative. The first、uh, strategy in the West was very simple: that they say about the Belt and Road Initiative is the Chinese giving bad money. To underdeveloped countries, and if they take this money, they will be debted. They will fall into a debt trap, and then this provides China to increase political influence. But later, it was it was it became quite clear that China is able 
first to provide a vision for many of the developing countries, which is not true for the case of the West, because they say that we need a common prosperity. So I'm giving you a loan to do development, and this is good for you and good for me. So this is what I just tried to mention with the case of win-win situation. So they, they don't say that we are giving this to you because you are poor, or we are giving this to you because we are more developed or whatever. We are giving this to you because we have money, and we invest it into your economy. And so this is a business uh, contract or, or it's a business type of relationship between two because this is also happening in China. So nobody's hiding this. And to be frank, this is this can be this can be attractive for many of the developing countries from at least from two points of views. One is that China is really giving money. Second, China does not necessarily have this top-down view, or they don't, don't try to teach developing countries how to use the money, what kind of. Uh, values, what kind of elements should be added into providing into this business uh, act. But they say you are a developing country, you know your country the best, so use the money and then later you will somehow uh, repay it. I think so this was welcomed in the developing countries very much. And second, the, the West had no vision to, to, to challenge this. So they, they figure out that they have to do something a response to the Belt and Road Initiative. So that's the reason they, they tried to launch their own connectivity strategies. But it has some weaknesses, unfortunately. First is that they try to compete with China in a way to exclude China out. And that's a big mistake, I think, because China is globally competitive, for example, in infrastructure construction. So, and I don't see why would it decrease the influence of the European Union if they would also include uh, Chinese uh, companies. So I think uh, including uh, Chinese companies would make these connectivity uh, strategies more cost effective. And there are, of course, other elements what we have to add. Second, that uh, many of these are arguing that this will be financed by public-private partnership. But what we see is that public part is still very few. So the, the money that is provided by the government is still not able to, to challenge China's position. And the third, and this is also a very important issue, Western Europe and, and also the United States had connectivity f going back for centuries, which connected their major and developed market to the lesser developed parts of the world. So I, I don't see where they can change it. So what, what could be the new thing? So maybe it could have a potential to connect it to another economic uh, center. But in the case, for example, of the European Union, this would mean to connect the European Union to China. How is it challenging the Belt Road Initiative? So if this connectivity is not connected from China to Europe, but from Europe to China, <laughs> I don't see the big difference. So second, we already have these kind of forms of connectivity. And the fifth, uh, fourth element, what I think is a big mistake, that they, they still miss complexity of connectivity strategies, but mostly focusing on hard infrastructure, which is not enough. I think, especially you won't be able to challenge China uh, in this regard. So what I would be pleased to see is less competition with China, but more cooperation with China. And I think this would be more beneficiary for also the Western countries, because in this case, if you are doing something together with China, it provides you an opportunity to change the behavior of China better than, than criticizing from outside. Another one about the EU and China, which is the initial memorandum of understanding between Hungary, China and Serbia, signed in December 2014. The construction contract for the Hungarian part of the project was then awarded in a non-competitive bid to the China Railway International Corp, a state-owned Chinese rail company. According to government 
representatives from Budapest, and the investment is projected to result in a wider economic benefit for the country. However, the European Commission started an infringement procedure against this, against this bid,、uh, as it is stated that Hungary was in breach of the EU procurement laws. What is your stand on this situation? Is it all about procurement, or does geopolitics plays an important role in this dilemma? Yeah, it's a very complicated question, and of course, relates to geopolitics as well. First, we have to state that again, we have here the notion that this is a project which was orchestrated in Beijing by very smart guys in order to create connectivity, in order to influence the Hungarian decision makers and to influence the European politics. The reality is more complicated. The original project to connect Budapest and Belgrade by railway on this line, which we are talking about, was originally initiated in 2009. In Hungary, so before the elections of 2010, that was one of the promises that the two capitals will be、uh, refurbished. So, when China came into the picture, was one of the meeting of the 16 plus one cooperation. This is a platform between the centuries in European countries and China. And China asked that whether you have any transborder project which can be financed China. And by that time, it, there was a project, and that. Became relevant for the Hungarian government because other infrastructure project which connects Hungary to and other EU member countries can be funded by European funds, but Serbia is not part of the European Union, so therefore an external financial actor could step in into the picture. So this is this is the general background of this question because this is more complicated. So this was originally an initiative by Hungary and Serbia, and this was just fine. So the, the, then come China into the picture to finance it. So there are a lot of discussion that China is building this railway not to connect with Szeged, but that's not the decision of Beijing. Who cares in Beijing that where the railway goes? A second, China is is using it to to buy politicians here.、Uh, yeah, this can be used, of course, because there is corruption in all countries in the world. But but we have to be realistic with this. So this was originally initiated in Hungary, and Hungary can set the rules. If the Hungarian government say that these rules are not acceptable. China, what can China say? Nothing would happen. So, so we we have to see this in a very realistic issue. And, and there is one more question that nobody likes to talk about this, but I think sooner or later the railway connection between Budapest and Belgrade should be upgraded. And and for the Hungarian economy, and we have to see again here from a structural perspective. This we are a very, I would say, not underdeveloped but a, a semi-periphery country. So we have limited opportunities to reach the global markets due to、uh, geographical distances, due to the size of of the Hungarian companies. We have to be to be very limited expectations. What could be the potential markets of the Hungarian economy? And I think the Balkan, the Western Balkan, and Serbia, and that part of the world is is one of a potential market for Hungary. And from from this point of view, I think we need a Good infrastructure targeting that part of the region. So, and then jump on the EU、uh, question. EU was,、uh, I mean, some of the EU countries and、uh, in the EU level because it's very complicated. What is the EU? And、uh, this project was、uh, criticized from a, a legal point of view. So they arguing that this is goes against the、uh, procedure process, which should be implemented in all cases of、uh, projects. Infrastructure projects within the European Union. The Hungarian government's argument was quite simple: that it said that this is connected Hungary and the non-EU member、uh, countries. So why should the EU laws be relevant from from this point of view? But later, it accepted the Hungarian government accepted. Yes, public procedure is necessary to 
to involve in this case. So that was one of the reasons this project was criticized. Second, there was a geopolitical element, obviously, that many argues that this is, again, a big white elephant in order to to influence political decision makers. And I even find very interesting theories as well that the railway will be used for China to debt Hungary, which is obviously impossible because the whole project currently costs around 3 billion uh, euros and the Hungarian GDP is 160 billion euros. So I, I would hardly <laughs> I would hardly doubt that this can in itself bankrupt the Hungarian economy. Of course, the problem is that the Hungarian economy is already debted. <laughs> so this can add an, an important element, but I mean, in, in itself, it would not bankrupt the Hungarian, Hungarian economy. Second, this, there was an argument, this will be used for multi-purpose, which is a nonsense again, which is how can this, China is not able to leave the South China Sea region, <laughs> how can it use for military purposes? So I think the smoke is much bigger than, than the flame. So the real element of this question should be seen in a more realistic way. Hungary is having so many infrastructure projects, even bigger infrastructure projects. But the difference is that that is financed by the European Union. But nobody is asking the rationality of these, these infrastructure projects, only the Budapest Belgrade Railway. To be frank, most of the infrastructure projects are not rational, do not create enough income just only simply measuring the the usage of these corridors. Do you think the emergence of the 17 plus 1 corporation poses a challenge to the deeply regulated EU? And can this corporation, in your opinion, be a foreigner to China, becoming an increasingly active player in European politics in the future? We don't have 17 plus 1 corporation because Lithuania <laughs> left it. So currently we again use it, the 16 plus 1 corporation, connecting 15 centuries European countries plus Greece with China. So it's again 16 plus 1 corporation. The major characteristics of the 16 plus 1 corporation is that this is loosely institutionalized, which means that if they want to participate, they can, but it's not compulsory to participate in projects. So, I mean, compare this to the European Union. So my answer in this case, again, is that it is over-politicized. How can a loosely institutionalized platform challenge the European Union as a regulated uh, common market, as we're talking union? So how, how can this challenge uh, the extremely regulated, extremely institutionalized uh, European Union? So this, is, this was originally a platform to, to make easier the communication with the centrist European from China, if I understand this well. So they don't have to deal with uh, 16 small countries, but they can put it in one package. And in each year, uh, the prime minister or now the president uh, can come and discuss the issues of the region. And of course, from a Chinese perspective, this was a platform which was initiated by China. So this proves, at least in China, uh, the great power status of, of, of China. But for us, this is mostly a platform to meet with the Chinese premier. So I, I don't think that this can challenge the EU at all. There was a criticism that this is dividing the European countries, making a big difference between the eastern part of the European Union and the western part of the European Union. And many argue that the eastern part of the EU will be the agent of China. Uh, what we can see in the last two, three years that the centuries European countries are the most anti-Chinese. Some of them are the most anti-Chinese countries, mostly because they experience this great power competition between the United States and China. And many argued that we can have more benefit to supporting the American approach. So therefore, 
the next generation of telecommunication system. 5G was from the 5G system, the Huawei was banned. And Lithuania, for example, started to flirt with the Taiwan issue as well as a political topic. And there were some other aspects like leaving the 17 plus one cooperation with Lithuania. So this proves quite well that this was over politicized again. When the circumstances changed, the Central Eastern European countries also started to change the tone, at least most of them, because they, they think it's better to, to put their money on, on the United States and not on China. I think this question concerns something happens recently. What's your take on China's neutrality in the context of the Ukrainian war and how important it is for China to stay neutral in the current situation? Mm-hmm. I think the one of the most important changes in the international uh, arena was the cooperation between Russia and China. This is not an alliance because both are great powers. China is an economic superpower. Russia is a military superpower. So therefore, they would not create an alliance, but they create a special partnership. And this special partnership is relevant for global politics because it's able to challenge the dominant positions of the United States. Because the United States in itself is a military and economic uh, superpower, but now it has to face with military superpower Russia and uh, an economic superpower China. So this is completely changing the international circumstances. That's a pity that many of those who are focusing on global politics does not recognize the importance of this. So what we see here is that China uh, is neutral, but it means that it's supporting Russia, to be frank, because it's not not ready to accept the Western sanctions. So from this point of view, the sanctions are, are crucial. So those are who are supporting the sanctions can be put into the Western bloc or the bloc of the United States. And those who are not, actually, in, in technical, they are supporting Russia. So this is a neutral position, but this neutral position is supporting uh, China. Uh, China is, of course, smart to do this uh, strategy because otherwise, if they, they would provide help to Russia, that could generate uh, extension of the sanctions on, <laughs> on China too. But we have to see this very realistic. This was hardly possible to sanction a country like Russia with the size. That's the 11th biggest economy in the world. But from some key resources, uh, Russia was a very important global player. And we still do not fully understand what will be the consequences of this. So we are very much at the beginning to see what is happening. So uh, there are some shocks for the financial market, the global financial markets, when the Russian reserve currencies were frozen. So this, this will have a major shock. The SWIFT system issue is also uh, very important. So just if you think about this, that we are not really understanding what is happening in the global economy due to the sanctions on a much smaller player like Russia, what could happen if sanctions would be introduced against China? Nobody really would understand the consequences. I can imagine what could be the consequences. It will be an extremely deep economic crisis, which obviously would lead to a political crisis, and nobody is really <laughs> understanding this issue. And if the prices would be even higher. So this would also be a big step to, uh, to, uh, to, to fight war with each other. And, and that's the terrible scenario. So I, I, I hope that China will be pragmatic, and I also hope that Western countries are pragmatic. So we see the EU summit last week. I don't see that why EU is in a position to, to put pressure on China. Um, 
I think if, just be realistic in this issue, if the EU countries, especially Germany, would lose the cheap resources from from Russia, would lose the cheap energy coming from Russia, plus losing its top, it's losing its top market, which is China now. So most of the German companies' top market is China. So if they would lose the resources, the energy, and the top market, we have to face an extremely deep economic crisis. Mm-hmm. And nobody is talking about this. It's impractical, <laughs> honestly. But yeah, since you mentioned the um, EU and China summit in last Friday, where the EU leaders warned China about interfering into uh, Western sanctions against uh, Russia, I mean, would... Beijing rather continued the conduct business as usual with uh, Russia, with little to no effects hap- happening to China at all. Uh, of course, we don't see this because Beijing is cautious as well. Because we have to understand the position of the Chinese Communist Party. So the major aim is to to be on power. And how can they be on power? Is to continue the further modernization of the country. And how can they? continue the further modernization of the country if they still maintain their economic relationship uh, with the West, with the world. So therefore, they try to avoid any risk which can endanger uh, the further economic development of China. So in this regard, we can see that Beijing is obviously more cautious, but the economic relations still continues. So, and, and if I mean, if you are not introducing sanctions, why you are not allowed to do business with, with, with the counterpart? So, but what we could see, Beijing is, is is a bit cautious, but they can do business. And and in the longer term, especially um, our historical experience is that most of the sanctions can remain in the long term. So China will be in a very beneficial position to connect Russia with the world. Obviously, certain technologies will arrive to Russia. And many of the resources Russia would export to the world can go through China. So if China will be an intermediator in between Russia and the world, this can have an important potential for China as well. Before we're wrapping up the podcast, uh, is there anything else you would like to share with our audience? Mm, I'm fine. Yeah, because, you know, as you already stated that China is very pragmatic player in international politics. And I think every action that does, there's a calculation behind it. And people usually don't understand and also misinterpret their intention is. And I think that is just what the podcast is about, to reinforce something that outside of the shallow mainstream thinking. And we have to consider the analytical prospects of China foreign policy, perhaps, in one way or another. But yeah. Yeah, uh, I, I, I agree with this. So if I can send a major message to, to our audience is that what we have to understand is, first, as as an average people in the West, that we live in the so-called Western information bubble. So th- here the information is created by the Western media, which obviously have certain interest in the West. And so we have this lens and through this lens we try to understand china and it's hard to understand china obviously because we have different cultural background we have different interests we have so different uh, historical experiences so i would al- always argue especially I, uh, if i can send this message to students that that never simply or blindly just a- accept 
the narratives which are created in the Western media on, on China, because in most of the cases, the situation is more complicated. And, and it's it really not an easy issue what to do, because in this case, uh, everybody would think, okay, let's turn to the Chinese media. But the Chinese media is created in a very different way, because China live in a, in a Chinese media bubble. So it's not easy to get relevant information in China, because due to these problems. So what I can most of the cases uh, suggest for, for an average people in the West that try to step back one and think it over, that is it so rational? Is it really can be the purpose of China? Because in many cases, like like like, like we're talking about China is colonizing Africa, pff, uh, what does it mean? Uh, Let's check the data. Let's let's step back. That is it the interest for China to colonize Africa? Maybe it is. Let's check check the facts. What what could be the other purpose for for China? Because so I, I mean they are packaging you answers, narratives, the media. Why? Because they, it's their interest to do it. So and if you buy it, you will have a very different view on China. And and the reality is, in many cases, is more complicated. Second, as as some of students probably would like to be do conduct academic research. Uh, this is very important that uh, in the Western academic sphere, we obviously have Western approaches, Western models. And we claim that these are universal models. But for example, in my research, I have to notice that this is not the case. So in most of the cases, those models which was created in the Western countries with Western scientists or Western uh, researchers are not able to use it as an adequate tool to investigate those countries which, which have a different cultural background, different historical experiences. So for those students who would like to do research on China or probably in other con- cultures as well, would be very beneficial to, to have a very limited trust in those models what we what we are using so i don't say that you don't have to use it because you have to prove it that you are, you i mean you studied it at the university so you have to prove it to the teachers so that you are master of these these models but but i i really highlight this that everybody should be very cautious uh, with these models and see the limits of of of, of this right. uh, this kind of researches so i think probably this could be the major message from from my side thank you for your sharing um, dear Mr. Esterhai, or Dr. Esterhai, uh, thank you so much for making the time for today and having such an amazing input in the academic fields of geopolitics with China in Central Europe. Dear our listeners, we arrive at the end of this week's podcast, in which we had the pleasure to discuss with the subtleties of Chinese geopolitics. My name is Simon Lee, and thank you for being with us, and stay tuned for the upcoming episodes. International Diplomatic Student Association is Hungary-based student organization for university students interested in political science, multilateral treaties, and intergovernmental relations. IDSA Podcast aims to educate its listeners on career opportunities to university students in Hungary, opening their minds to pressing social and geopolitical issues. The podcast is recorded with the support of Apple Radio.